Hi, everyone. You may notice that my partner, Julie Jenjak, is not with me today for today's podcast. I joked with Julie and told her it's because she knew that the topic was politics and nothing seems to get people running the other way like political discussions. I'm just kidding. Julie was unable to join for the recording of the podcast today due to some travel conflicts that she had, but I know that she would have really enjoyed our episode with our guest, JT Taylor. JT Taylor serves as Senior Macro Analyst and Chief Political Strategist at Hedgeye Potomac Research. JT has extensive experience in both government and business in Washington, D.C., with a career spanning the legislative and executive branches, as well as the financial services industry. Prior to joining Potomac Research Group, he ran Polaris Research, which is a U.S. public markets division of the Holdingham Group based in the United Kingdom. He previously led a policy research team as managing director at DiMatteo Maness. From 2002 to 2009, he was managing partner of Kemp Partners, a Washington DC based strategic consulting, business development and marketing firm that he founded with secretary Jack Kemp in 2002. At Kemp Partners, he oversaw day-to-day -day operations and business development while managing client relationships in both the corporate arena and the financial services industries. So without further ado, let's listen to what JT had to say about the upcoming election. JT Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. Great to be here. So, JT, I don't know if many of our listeners have noticed, but uh, there's an election coming up in November. I mean, I, I think if if you lived in my home state of Pennsylvania, there was there'd be no way of avoiding the fact that in just a couple of months, we'll hopefully all be heading to the voting booth or doing our mail in voting to select members of Congress. And uh, there's been a lot of news, JT, about this congressional election, both in the House and the Senate. It seems like every election is going to be the election to end all elections, right? If, if our favored candidate doesn't win. But, you know, I wanted to come to you, JT, as kind of an insider and an expert in the political industry, if you will. And, uh, and tell us a little bit about how you're thinking at this point about both the House and the Senate races in the United States. John, once again, thanks a lot for having me today. Uh, I love doing this. And uh, it's, it's going to be one of those interesting years. Uh, you know, if you look back at the springtime, you know, all we heard or read about was this red wave, this big Republican wave that was coming. All of a sudden, we have the summertime. Uh, I'm from Pennsylvania as well. And uh, the summertime, in particular in August, uh, when uh, President Biden and the Democrats hit their stride, we had a bit of a pushback against that Republican wave. And here we are post-Labor Day. People are beginning to focus and make up their minds if they haven't already. I mean, you know, if you're anywhere uh, um, near a TV and have been throughout the summer and, of course, the last couple of weeks, you're already being bombarded by television ads. Uh, but the, the, the pendulum swung back a bit to the Democrats uh, again since, I think, early August up, up through Labor Day. And then, as I mentioned last week, uh, uh, to a group of folks. We have already have um, a, a bad CPI number, of, of course, and uh, we, we had a potential rail strike last week, uh, John, as you know, and I think that's still looming in the distance. And uh, 
that that momentum that the Democrats have had or have uh, halted uh, just just like that. So here we are in uh, um, uh, sort of in the throes of uh, weeks before the the midterms here, and things are pretty tight and probably as tight as I've ever seen it. So if anyone's out there telling you that ah, the Republicans are going to win uh, in, in a runaway or the Democrats have all this great momentum, don't believe them. This is going to be tight. It's going to be close. And I, I, it's going to come down to the wire. JT, I was going to ask, in the House of Representatives, I've heard it say that despite their, four, what, their 435 seats, that the control of the House of Representatives actually is much more narrow than that. Can you explain a little bit about that and where things stand? Yeah, and this is going to be a theme you're going to be hearing more and more about if you haven't already. And that's we know this. We live this every day. And hopefully not at the dinner table, but uh, the country is polarized. Right. And so the congressional map, um, the House map in particular, shows a, a very red uh, portion of the country and a very blue portion of the country. And of those 435 seats, if you can believe this, John, only about 45 to 50 are truly competitive. And you could probably narrow that a little more to pure purple seats. And some of those 45 to 50 might be a light shade of pink or a lighter shade of blue, uh, lean Republican, lean Democrat in, in that case. But but purple districts, uh, independent districts, if you will, or I don't want to say a thing of the past, but they may be in the coming months, in the coming years. So that control of the House is going to come down to those seats. Again, um, everything else is pretty much baked in. Again, unless uh, another wave trend emerges, and I think we're too close to the election for that to happen. So where does the House stand at this point in your view, JT? Yeah, so you know, if you look back at the spring, uh, Minority leader of the, of the Republicans, Kevin McCarthy, was talking about a 50 or 60 point gain uh, for uh, the Republicans. And all they need is five right now uh, to take over Congress. And that would have been a massive sea change. I think right now what we're looking at, if the election were held today, and again, we still have another CPI number, uh, another jobs number. Uh, we have uh, escalation in Ukraine. So many, many factors that can change all of this. But if the election were held today, I believe that the Republicans would gain somewhere in the low to mid-teens uh, in the House and take over the House of Representatives, John. And as we think about those seats, um, how is this different, JT? I know we hear historically that the parties who is in power in terms of the presidential office uh, oftentimes loses seats in the midterm elections. And I think that's what Leader McCarthy was talking about earlier this year, or at least factoring into his math. Do you think that this could be different this time because of maybe how politically divided things are or how narrow that House control has become? I mean, there is that chance. But since World War II, John, uh, uh, the party in power, party that held the White House has traditionally lost seats. I think one, maybe two times, definitely after September 11th, uh, when President Bush kept the House. And I believe there was one other time, again, since World War II, uh, that the party in power has not lost seats. So it's it would be, uh, uh, you know, historically um, unprecedented if if it happened. One, two, you also have um, you're looking at presidential approval ratings uh, for Biden in this case. Uh, Biden's were were pretty low uh, in the springtime. They're still very low, even though they've ticked up uh, over the course of the summer. Um, 
and then of course we'll get to the generic the so-called generic ballot in a second uh but the there is a chance you cannot rule out that um, given the Supreme Court decision with Dobbs over abortion over the summertime, uh, that the, the, the momentum and voter registration amongst Democrats uh, sort of uh, overtakes that wave or the ripple, as some people are calling it right now. And there's a there's a slighter chance greater than the springtime, but slight chance that the Democrats could keep the House and the Senate. So let's move over to the Senate for a second, J.D., because the Senate, as we know, is 50-50 right now. It seems like it's even more closely divided or more closely in contention than the House. Uh, how do you view the Senate shaping up? This is going to be the this is going to come down to the wire, John. I mean, down to the very wire uh, with all the factors I'm looking at right now. Uh, you've got about seven, eight Senate seats in some of the same exact states that played a major role, no surprise here, in, in 2020. You have Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, New Hampshire, uh, and the list goes on. Uh, it's gonna come down to those eight seats. Remember, um, every, every two years, one third of the Senate is up. So this year, um, 30, it should be 33 or 34. It's one more this year because uh, we had a retirement and so they're looking to fill that vacancy. Uh, but the Republicans are defending 22 of those 33 or 34 seats. So they've got more ground to defend um, and the Democrats have left less, which gives the Dems a bit of an advantage. But again, some of the states where the Democrats are running are in pure purple states and in, in states where um, there have been Republican or Democrat retirements. So um, in my view, it is gonna come down to the wire. I do think right now the Democrats have an edge uh, there has been, and I know you guys have been bombarded with this this talk of the the so-called untested Republican candidates out there versus the establishment. But the Republicans would have an advantage, in my opinion, if they had gone through and uh, nominated some of the the more establishment types. And untested, in some cases, isn't bad. I mean, I would prefer a maverick nine chances out of ten rather than the old guard. But if you're Mitch McConnell, John, uh, and you want to keep this or you want to take over the Senate, you want the best possible candidate that's going to win in, in their mind, uh, minds and that of their, their various committee arms, the Senate Republican Committee. They're going to want uh, an establishment candidate in there that is going to unify the party. Some of these untested candidates, uh, um, shall we say, have more controversial uh, I don't want to say backgrounds have made more controversial statements. And uh, as I said, they're untested. So they're going to make uh, uh, some mistakes or gaffes along the way. Not that the Republic, not that the Democrats aren't going to do the same thing. There are plenty of those, John. Uh, but it, it, had McConnell had his way, I think he would have put forward uh, a number of different uh, nominees for those Senate races. So that's why it's up for grabs. In a couple of these seats in particular, um, you, you've got some some candidates that should be ahead, uh, but they're running behind the Democrats again in a year where Republicans should have the advantage. So it's clearly, uh, uh, you know, when you when you factor all of this out, it clearly is going to be a toss up. You've got to give the Democrats an edge right now if the election were held today based on, you know, based on money in the bank, uh, based on polling. And we could talk about polling all day long and the, 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 the flawed polling system the U.S. has. You could look at polling, uh, you could look at money in the bank, 
and support by the party and then unification, you know, is the party unified behind this candidate? And in most cases, they're unified behind the Democrat uh, in our state of, of Pennsylvania, John. Uh, you know that there is, uh, uh, they, they may be unified a bit behind uh, the, the Senate candidate uh, Oz, uh, but there is a bit of um, a dissension with the gubernatorial candidate, and we'll talk about those ties in a second. So, JT, it sounds like uh, your best guess at this moment would be a divided Congress, uh, maybe the House remaining or, or changing to Republican hands, Senate maybe an edge to the Democrats. I guess a question I have is, uh, and some of those contentious races, Senate seats that are currently held by Republicans or currently held by Democrats, which are flipping. We, we just mentioned Pennsylvania, but there's also the race in Georgia. How important is the, uh, the rest of the ballot, let's say? Talk a little bit about ticket splitting and what that means in some of these really close races. I think you just picked up on my last comment here. So let's let's go back to our neighborhood, John, in Ohio and Pennsylvania. In Ohio, you have a very popular Republican governor, Mike DeWine, uh, running double digits ahead of his uh, of his Democratic challenger. But yet, in an, in a state, Ohio, that is rapidly becoming red, uh, if it's not red already, because uh, it was you know purported to be purple for years, and I, I don't not for one believe that, uh, but I, I do believe now that it's, it's a red state. Um, for Senate, you've got uh, a House member, Tim Ryan, a Democrat running against a, 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 an untested candidate, J.D. Vance, and they're running neck and neck. So the hope is that uh, DeWine, the Republican, can pull uh, Vance uh, with him and that there's there won't be ticket splitting. What we're seeing a lot of is over the last couple of election cycles is given the country's polarization that there is less ticket splitting people are going in there and pulling the republican lever they're pulling the democrat lever and then just moving on uh there is the independent factor which we'll get to uh, uh in a second but many republican candidates are hoping and some as well democrats as well are hoping that the top of the ticket uh will help them so in this case in ohio Vance is counting on hopefully some uh, uh, coattails uh, from Governor DeWine. Go across the border over to Pennsylvania, and the opposite is true. The, the, the gubernatorial candidate uh, is, is quite controversial. He does not have uh, uh, a unified Republican Party behind him in the state. Uh, and so you've got Oz versus Fetterman in, in a, just a very, very, very hot, hot race. And I think Oz would probably hope for some separation between him and the gubernatorial nominee uh, in that case, and would hope that there's some ticket splitting uh, going on as well. So JT, I wanna ask you about a couple of things that we always hear about in these uh, election cycles. And if you could share with us the importance of these things, one being the generic ballot and the other being presidential favorability ratings. How did how do they impact specifically this November's elections? Yeah, so let's go back again to the springtime. The generic ballot showed the, the Republicans with a clear edge. So what 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 these pollsters do, and these are pollsters of all sizes, shapes, uh, uh, partisan backgrounds. So what I typically try to do, and I never listen to one uh, of, of these pollsters. I try to aggregate uh, um, a number of things I see on the horizon, and then you know look at some of the the best practices of, of those people I pick, and um, 
so there there was a clear advantage for Republicans, uh, I think, by four or five points in the springtime, maybe greater than that. That has flipped over the summertime. So the generic ballot is now favoring uh, the Democrats. And what these pollsters do is they go out to the field and ask via cell phone or hardline, which is kind of hard to, to do, or either a, an online poll and ask if it were just a pure Democrat or a pure Republican, who would you vote for if the election were held today? They don't make it, mention names, they don't mention issues. It's just based on party. That's why they call it generic. And at this point, um, over the course of the summer, the, the Democrats have regained uh, uh, their balance, if you will, and are up by two, three points. So there are a couple of out um, over the past 24 to 48 hours that show this neck and neck. And I believe that's exactly where we are. So what it's going to come down to and what that tells me and how that um, uh, uh, impacts the November election is that once again, uh, you know, Democrats have pretty much made up their minds. Republicans have made up their minds. It's going to come down to just like 2020, 2018 and years before, it's truly going to come down to independence at this point. And that's what all signs are showing on the presidential approval. Uh, uh, you know, same thing. It's a factor in any election, uh, any midterm election. And it's typically this year, the Democrats were, you'll see a number of Democrats not running away from Biden, but not rushing uh, uh, to share the pulpit with him in some of these campaign stops because his approval rating was at an all-time low. He's since regained some momentum, still pretty damn low, John, for, for a, 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 a presidency. And um, uh, he did have an uptick based on a couple of victories that the Democrats agree with Biden or not, John. Uh, the Democrats, after 18 months of this, what I call a circular firing squad here in D.C., uh, you know, inter-party sniping. You've got Ocasio-Cortez um, sniping at uh, uh, Pelosi and the centrist. I mean, you know, they, they didn't understand the fact that they were in power, but they were in power by one seat in the Senate. And so you had all this ridiculous infighting for 18 months. Finally, 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 fortunately for the Democrats, at one point in August, they kind of turned uh, the tide past the Inflation Reduction Act on the heels of uh, a massive infrastructure bill. Um, you know, uh, uh, Biden uh, and, and our, our troops captured Zawahiri, uh, killed Zawahiri, I should say. And this is, you know, think a year prior to that. We are coming off of probably one of the most disastrous withdrawals. Uh, and I believe that's when Biden's uh, uh, approval started to tick downward rapidly uh, when it came to Afghanistan. So a year later, uh, the tide has been turned for the most part, um, but they're not there yet. The, the, his approval is still low, but there has been a separation between you know, Biden's uh, a low approval rating and this generic ballot. So you do see some folks making that separation. And I think a, lar a lot of this is largely based on the Dobbs uh, Supreme Court hearing on abortion in the summer, uh, where Democrats are, are, are starting to register uh, more women uh, and, and, and young folks. And you're starting to see that reflected in polling numbers. And you also saw that reflected in a number of special elections that were held over the summer for vacant house seats. So JT, when it comes to this election, I want to ask this to kind of wrap up the view of Congress, but let's talk about the topic of issues, because it seems like the, the top issue seems to change constantly. In the summer, as you mentioned previously, it was the Dobbs decision. And then we had uh, uh, some of what was going on with former President Trump. 
more recently, we had an 8.3% inflation number, which came on the heels of high inflation through the summer, uh, but some pretty significant market drops as well. Then over the past couple of weeks, the immigration issue has risen again with Governor DeSantis uh, sending some, some of those folks to Martha's Vineyard, which put it back in the headlines. How does someone like you begin to handicap what issue is going to take precedence as it comes to the upcoming election? It's it's a little it's a little like whiplash, John. I'll be honest with you. You had um, again, as you said, indicated at the beginning of the summer, it was all about the economy, inflation, gas prices, uh, which uh, mm -hmm. are potentially going to be on the rise again, um, and uh, immigration, and of course uh, um, crime, which is a big one. But immigration just reemerged, and masterfully, before I get to the Democrats' issues, masterfully, in my opinion, by DeSantis. It's a hot political potato but it took all of the attention uh, away from um, any other topic out here. And it's bringing, so what DeSantis is doing, agree with him or not, what DeSantis is doing is sort of deflecting uh, and changing the subject uh, away from whether it's a Mar-a-Lago one day or some other controversy and bringing it home. Now it's not gonna sit well with everybody, uh, but I think with the Republican base, it's gonna get them fired up. So. You know, that 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 is a momentum changer. Um, and there are downsides to what DeSantis is doing as well. Don't get me wrong. Republican uh, Democrats, on the other hand, uh, really want to focus on their successes uh, from the summertime. They, you know, and unfortunately, it's going to be about abortion uh, uh, and clean energy. And this is some of the, the things that you're going to be hearing a lot about. So there, it feels like there are two parallel universes taking place. Uh, with these these different subset of, subsets of issues, but what I tend to look at again in aggregate are uh, what voters care about the most, and voters care about the economy and inflation. Surprisingly, and this is you know watching politics over 25 years here, um, surprisingly, abortion has risen to a top three topic, and as has China, believe it or not, John, and we could spend a whole whole podcast on on that at some point down the line. But uh, the, uh, uh, these are the these are the issues that have risen to the fore. So you give the Republicans an advantage uh, uh, on, on that front, especially on inflation, especially given the most recent CPI number. Um, but 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 uh, Donald Trump has entered the equation as he did this this past summer. So if you look back in at early August, John, uh, the, the Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act which is a 750 to $800 billion bill, uh, another massive spend by the Democrats, uh, in some good components to it, but plenty of, of fodder, attack fodder for Republicans. And as, if you go back to when uh, the Democrats passed Obamacare over a decade ago, uh, the Republicans were able to frame that in the days and weeks after passage and really go after Obamacare and put the Democrats on the defensive. They couldn't do that this time around when they passed the Inflation Reduction Act. They could not counter the, the, the Democrats' messaging going into the summertime because uh, of the, um, the Mar-a-Lago issue. And all of a sudden, that supplanted and, and took all the oxygen out of the room and out of the Republican sales, messaging sales, if you will. So it, this is why the messaging, these issues are important. Uh, this is why uh, the Republicans are about to uh, unveil uh, their sort of uh, modern day contract with America, which is something Newt Gingrich ran on 
20 or 30 years ago. So the Republicans are going to unveil this month um, um, their four or five issues, uh, their platform, if you will, issue platform to at least, again, along with immigration and all these other issues, at least keep the focus on issues, not on controversies or past elections. So it sounds to me, JT, like, and not to use, I, I honestly don't mean this as a pun, whoever holds the last trump card on issues may be in the catbird seat when it comes to uh, whatever issue controls the election, right? I, I think you, uh, unless there is another October or some sort of October surprise, um, I do believe that that's going to be the case. And again, it's going to be the economy. So one of the things we're going to be looking at is that last CPI number, uh, that last jobs number, uh, where interest rates are. And of course, maybe most importantly right now, because this is helping the Democrats, where gas prices are. So JT, I'm going to switch topics on you a little bit, because obviously in a midterm year, everybody's focused on Congress. But I want you to talk a little bit about the importance of the state races. We're electing governors, we're electing state legislatures in many different states. How does this impact the political picture? Maybe not in the next six months, but in the next two, four, six, 10 years? But think about this, John. I mean, everyone in your, it's such a good question because everyone is focused on the House and the Senate, the U.S. House, the Senate, and always the White House in, in two years. But the state legislatures, the, the House, state houses and the state senates and the governorships, these are the ones, these are the people that are drawing the congressional maps. So if you go back to what I said earlier in the segment, uh, when we're talking about this, this uh, uh, ruby red um, Republican seats and these royal blue Democratic seats, um, this is a byproduct of the state legislatures that are drawing these congressional maps. So what we're about to see, or potentially see, in the, as well as the governors, uh, and what we're about to see is a, uh, a movement, uh, potentially by the Supreme Court on a North Carolina ruling that could potentially winnow. Remember, we talked about 45 to, 45 to 50 seats up for grabs. We could be looking at 35 or less in the coming elections uh, that would uh, truly be competitive every year. And when you think about this, this is control of Congress. And, you know, that's, it's going to hinge on those few seats time and again. And control of Congress means a lot of things. It's the power of the purse string, as we know. And something that it's sort of overlooked every year is the appointment of judges. And we're seeing that play out politically uh, with some of the controversies, uh, uh, political controversies out there. Uh, but we're also seeing that play out on such issues like abortion, as we said. Uh, earlier in the program, uh, it's going to play a major role that helped stem any progress that the Republicans were making over the summer and just sort of changed the narrative here. Even though everybody was prepared for it and they saw it coming down the pike, uh, it completely changed the narrative. And it's also going to impact, you know, the, the judges through rulings like Roe v. Wade slash Dobbs. There's another EPA decision that came down uh, over the summer, which I think we're gonna to get to in a second, that's, gonna, that's going to impact how regulations are looked at. Um, this is, the, the state legislatures are going to draw these maps that will last for the rest of the decade. And so if there is a, a, a more of a red tilt to some of these states, then you know, you're, you're, you're gonna be looking at um, uh, some potential challenges for Democrats coming down the pipe. 
So JT, I think when the untrained mind thinks about it, we think what's happening in this country? Are all the Republicans moving to one area and all the Democrats moving to other areas? But I think what you're saying is it has as much to do with how these districts are drawn and kind of what, that, what, what complexion that takes on that maybe the, re, the result of which after years of doing this on the fringes or maybe in the mainstream, depending how you look at it, is the gerrymandering really what has caused the amount of polarization in our political scene, do you think? I, I, it has something to do with it because there's no, you know, you, you don't have challengers in some of these seats. Uh, you don't have, you know, I, I used to, uh, when I used to talk to clients, I used to ask them three questions. I said, first, who's your member of Congress? And maybe 10% of, of folks in the room would tell me who their members of Congress, member of Congress was. Uh, a few of them knew who their senators were. Second, I'd say, did you vote in the primary? And they would you know, look at each other and like, what's a primary? What do you mean a primary? And then the third question was, did you vote in the general election? And maybe a third of the people in the room would say that they voted in the general election. Having said that, these races are determined, many of the outcome of, outcomes of these races are determined in the primaries where you have party activists uh, spending much of their time. And that's not to say folks that don't, you know, have a day job aren't activists, but the, the, the folks that are really ginned up about their issues are getting out there and controlling these primaries and determining who's winning these primaries. And when you're running in a ruby red district, you know, you, you're going to get, you know, you're going to probably put forward the, the most conservative person you probably can. Uh, to win that. So the, 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 the gerrymandering is one, and again, we could spend a whole podcast on this, John, but two is money in politics. I mean, it's kind of disgusting at this point how much money is being spent. Uh, I think just anecdotally, um, I'm going to sort of jump back to the Senate for a second, but the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the, the chairman of that committee was criticized for blowing through $183 million over the summer. He and Mitch McConnell got into crosshairs, but think about that number, 183 million spent in, 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 in some words uh, by, by some Republicans, potentially wasted, even though I think that they bought some good airtime in critical states, but that's just the summer. And so we're talking about billions. I mean, I, I never thought in a million years we'd be talking about billions of dollars being spent on elections. And that's a factor. And then a, a major, major factor. Uh, in all of this. And you can see that just by this barrage of ads. Uh, I mean, there's just, you can't turn around, especially if you're in those states that we, our state of Pennsylvania, if you're in Ohio, Georgia, you're not going to be able to turn the TV on for the next five or six weeks without seeing an ad. Um, and then lastly, um, this is, you know, you could, I could, I'm probably showing my first years here, which are the 90s, but um, just before I arrived on the scene, uh, transportation uh, and, and members of Congress interacting, I think is another factor, frankly. So when you think about maybe the 60s, the 70s, even into the 80s, yes, we had air travel, but it has grown, it's become much easier to travel, much easier to get from point A to point B, unless you were traveling this past summer. Um, and um, with the advent of easy travel, I think members of Congress started going back to their congressional districts more often and there used to be a time in DC where when you were elected, you would move your family to DC. You, that's probably the minority right now. So people are pretty much coming here Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and then hightailing it back to their districts on weekends, which is a good thing because they're spending time with their constituents 
But what they're not doing when they're here is interacting with uh, the other party. It used to be where they're, they're a Republican and a Democrat would live in the same neighborhood and their kids would be at the same football games or at the same soccer games or at the same uh, charity benefits. None of that is taking place right now and hasn't for the last decade or two. And in my experience, what's happening is when they're finished voting on Capitol Hill and our, our great dome, they hightail it uh, to various clubs, Republican or Democratic clubs for fundraisers. And you're not going to see a Democrat at a Republican fundraiser. You're only going to see a Republican at a, fund, a Republican fundraiser. And the, 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 the parties and the members just aren't, for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. There are pockets of bipartisanship here, but they're generally just not talking to each other. So JT, as we wrap up our podcast today, I want to talk about hypothetical outcomes. And uh, why don't we start where we began, which was uh, your current handicapping saying your best guess if the election were today would be divided government, House to the Republicans, Senate to the Democrats, not by much in either direction. Uh, and I think divided government has kind of been the norm in the United States. It's been rare that there have been periods of united uh, presidential and congressional leadership. But uh, tell us some of the implications you see of an outcome which is divided as we projected at this point. It, uh, it's If we have divided government, if the, the Republicans take over one or both um, uh, bodies of Congress, um, no new taxes, period. Uh, they're just not going to happen. Uh, you're not going to see any big uh, 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 spending bills like we did with uh, the infrastructure bill or the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, those are a thing of the past. Progressive priorities, any progressive priorities, even if the Democrats keep the Senate, are gone, done, toast. So you're not going to hear any more talk of these multi-trillion dollar um, uh, uh, bills that could, you know, uh, 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 could be inflationary. Um, the, the you could have a debt ceiling fight, John, and that's going to be a little dangerous here because um, we, we, you know, our, our, our the country's credit uh, in, in, in faith in our system is based on uh, um, raising the debt and making sure that we fulfill our obligations. That could be a really ugly fight, as well as the spending bills. So while we might not have these massive um, uh, Democrat spends that we had over the last couple of years, um, we may be faced with um, uh, the annual budget bills, you know, the, the appropriations, the 12 appro appropriations bills. That could be a really messy, ugly fight that could lead to a shutdown. Um, so those are the things that are going to sort of come, pretty much come to a standstill. You might see an uptick in defense spending because I'm seeing these interesting alliances between, and I don't necessarily want to call it bipartisanship, but you do see more Democrats uh, supporting defense spending and you do see a number of republicans sort of balking at increased defense spending but i do think that given what's happening in ukraine and other parts of the country china taiwan i think you're going to see uh, an uptick in defense spending uh where can we see um uh, some commonalities um you know big tech regulation uh, i'm i'm probably running against the tide here uh, uh because Everyone thinks that uh, big tech may um, uh, survive a, a Republican House, but I think that Republicans and Democrats will continue uh, to put uh, the big uh, tech companies uh, under the microscope. 
Uh, you might see some agreement on crypto. And as I said, China oversight and defense spending is, are other areas of agreement. The other thing you'll see, again, is unless the Republicans take the Senate, uh, if the Democrats keep the Senate, then Biden will continue to appoint judges. Right now, he's on a record tear, um, and just as Trump was before him at uh, um, uh, appointing judges. I think he's at a record pace uh, for this juncture in his, his presidency. That will continue. Uh, all that's going to take is 50 plus one votes in the Senate. The House has nothing to do with judgeships. So uh, Biden will continue uh, to put forth um, um, the um, uh, judges of pace. So JT, let's consider another alternative, which is the Democrats remain in the position they're in today. They retain the Senate, they retain the House, and certainly regardless of this midterm election, uh, President Biden will still be in the presidency. What might we expect then from a policy standpoint? I think more spending, uh, just frankly, more, more, more spending. I think you're going to see, a, I don't want to say a continuation of progressive a progressive agenda because the Senate is still going to be tight and the progressives, and it feels like I'm taking pot shots here, but I'm just stating the facts, John, progressives still don't get the fact that even if you have nominal control of the Senate, it's not 60 votes. So you're not going to be able to get these massive, massive bills through without uh, 60 votes unless you do it through the reconciliation process. So they'll still try. Um, you'll see climate action on the climate. Uh, you will see probably some uh, movement on taxes. Uh, so some tax increases. I don't know about personal rates, uh, but it, uh, you'll, you'll certainly see some activity on the tax front, uh, energy front, as I said, um, China oversight. And then I do believe that it, coming back to big tech, I think that the, they're really going to put big tech under the microscope, um, um, as well as, as other antitrust um, issues. Um, if they if they keep everything. And then let's say the third scenario, JT, which is Republicans sweep both the House and the Senate. But again, President Biden is still in the presidency. Is there any difference between that and divided government? Not not really. I mean, I think that I guess judges if, if right, would be. Yeah, it's, judges are done right at that point. But it's still it's divided government. The Biden agenda is done. Uh, whether or not, uh, um, as long as Republicans take one of, of one or both, and um, it's just going to come down to, like I said, these 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 spending bills every year, the debt ceiling, uh, a couple of other. I don't I don't want to relegate them to a a, a, a separate level, but other um, um, issues that really aren't at the forefront, uh, smaller issues, whether it's as I said, big tech, crypto might um, be, be under the microscope, crypto regulation. And um, uh, but it is going to be it'll, it's, it will probably be the ugliest two years I think we've seen in politics um, if, if that takes place. It, it's going to be ugly nonetheless, but it's, it's about to get uglier, John. There won't be much wriggle room uh, for the for the Biden agenda, if any at all. Any progressive ideas are dead uh, on arrival. Uh, any big spending is dead on arrival. Um, it's just going to be sort of plotting through getting these these uh, uh, annual appropriations bills done. And then probably, as I said, I keep on mentioning China, uh, but you know, they're, they're, that's an area of, of, of bipartisanship right now, as well as defense spending. So that might be the one beneficiary of, of purely divided government. 
you know, a question I should have asked you earlier when we were talking about the house, JT, but this is a topic that uh, some people are like enough already. Other people are like, it's the only way to get at the truth The the house and the control of these investigative committees, right? Whether at one time it was Trump, Russia, then it's January 6th. Now we have, you know, Republicans, Republicans saying, if we do take the house, watch out, we're coming for you, regardless of what the issue is. Do you see these? It, it, is there is there a lot of power in these House investigative committees uh, to influence the narrative, if you will? What's the impact of that? And why don't we hear as much about Senate committees as we do about the House committees? Uh, really good question. I think <laughs> the 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 Senate has tried to be, um, I think, over over my course here. I mean, you could go back years. I think my first years here. Uh, were the Anita Hill hearings. Um, so that that would be one counter to what you said, John. But um, I think on the House side, as you have control of, of, of uh, these investiga investigative committees, especially uh, what's happening on the January, January 6th committee right now, that has raised more attention. You have seen more awareness of, of those issues um, and sort of an ability to, um, I don't want to say control the narrative, but an ability to bring that to the fore. I mean, there's still another hearing coming up at the end of the month. And if, you know, I don't watch a lot of the, uh, the, the, the main networks, but I, I read in the morning what's sort of at the, the, the top thread. And uh, in a couple of weeks, or in, probably in about a week, you'll see more um, September, uh, January 6th hearings. And that will be at the front of the news cycle. So yes, they have an ability to control the narrative. Uh, and, and, and change the topic of, of other important issues that are taking place. Um, and there will be hearings afoot with, if the, the, the Republicans take over their promised hearings on um, uh, from DHS. There'll probably be a move to impeach Biden. Um, there'll be a look at Hunter Biden's laptop and, and um, all of those issues will resurface again. Um, and there'll probably be a, a really controversial um, look at the Department of Justice and the Mar-a-Lago um, issue from uh, from August of, of 2022 and how that all came about, unless that proves otherwise in the coming weeks. Uh, so the, the, the Republicans are loaded for bear uh, with their investi investigative committees. Remember, the House guys tend to be more activists, uh, and so they're going to come up with the more um, I don't want to say glamorous, but the more headline-grabbing hearings. Um, and the Senate's not incapable of that, but they seem to be a little bit more stoic to me. You might have answered my question that the Senate, being that there's only 50 of them, probably have to please a wider constituency. The House yep. is probably, as we talked about earlier, more polarized and concentrated. Well, JT, I've had a chance to ask you, and I'm sure this election season, you get peppered with tons of questions like the ones I've asked today. But I want to take a minute to ask you a series of different questions, something we do here on the Human Centric Podcast, uh, just to kind of humanize our guests, if you will, because we're all people. JT, is it okay if you participate in what we call a lightning round so our guests can get to know who JT Taylor is a little bit deeper? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, get ready. <laughs> I better brace myself. Top of the head answers. You ready? Uh, are you a morning person or a night owl? Absolutely a morning person. What's your favorite holiday? 
Thanksgiving. Wow. I thought I'd take time to think about this. Um, <laughs> easy. This is lightning. All right. Scale of one to 10. How good of a driver are you? Oh, God. I, I consider myself a 10. Uh, but I'm 99% sure my mother, would, my mother would say I'm a one. <laughs> are you? Well, this might be loaded. Are you a city guy or a country guy thinking about your time in D.C.? Which do you prefer, city or country? Gosh, I prefer country right now, even though <laughs> I live in the city. Beach house or lake house? Beach house. Uh, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Gosh, I consider myself an introvert, but it's clear uh, if you talk to any of my friends, I'm an extrovert. Are you messy or are you neat? Neat. OCD. Are neat. you le <laughs> left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed, sometimes left, oddly enough. East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. Read a book or listen to Audible? Uh, read. Cake or pie? Cake. Chocolate? <laughs> Chocolate cake, even more specific. And dogs or cats? Dogs, definitely. <laughs> well, JT Taylor, thanks for taking some time with us today. Uh, we really appreciate your insight. So thanks for being with us. John, that was great, great fun. Hope to do it again soon. And for those of you listening who would like to learn more about JT's views, we featured some of uh, JT's articles on our website, hartfordfunds.com. And also on hartfordfunds.com, you can find our Politics Resource Center. And in the Politics Resource Center, you'll be able to find client-friendly pieces that you'll be able to use with your clients just to give them perspective, maybe kind of cool the emotions, and bring us all back to a rational approach about how to think about elections and especially how to think about elections when it comes to our long-term financial goals. So again, JT, thanks very much. And for all of you listening to the Human-Centric Investing Podcast, thank you, and we'll see you on a future episode. Thanks for listening to the Hartford Funds Human-Centric Investing Podcast. If you'd like to tune in, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. And if you'd like to be a guest and share your best ideas for transforming client relationships, email us at guestbooking at hartfordfunds.com. We'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.